it didn't satisfy them, so once again they decided to pull a coup and vote against the bill and humiliated McCarthy somewhat. But as far as I can tell, they're not going to use this to kick McCarthy out. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Friday, June 2nd. Today, Tina Wynn swings by the studio to discuss the fallout from the House debt ceiling deal, how Speaker Kevin McCarthy won over his enemies and steamrolled the far right. And later, we talk about why Elon Musk is now getting criticized by the same conservative media influencers he's been trying to bring onto Twitter. All that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Friday, everybody. I'm Ben Landy, rolling into the weekend here with Tina Wynn to talk about the debt ceiling crisis that wasn't. Tina, how are you feeling? I know you've got one of those big debt ceiling clocks in your kitchen. Are you uh, are you worried? Are you are you breathing mm-hmm. a sigh of relief? I have always had a debt ceiling clock in my kitchen, Ben. How did you know this? <laughs> you just seem like the type. <laughs> I don't know what. <laughs> okay, yeah, let, let's talk about serious stuff. Sure, sure. Um, I'll come back to that eventually. But yeah, for like the past couple of months, I know that People in the House Freedom Caucus have been threatening to try to put the screws on McCarthy to make this bill as conservative as possible. And the hardliners in uh, the group of people I call the 20, sometimes the Taliban 20, the people who prevented McCarthy from being speaker for maybe 15 rounds of voting back in January, they really, really wanted a specific set of provisions in the ultimate debt bill. The first time around, when he passed it out of the House to bring it to Biden, they're like, okay, sure, we're great. Uh, The second time around, when he brought it back, it didn't satisfy them. So once again, they decided to pull a coup and vote against the bill and humiliated McCarthy somewhat. But as far as I can tell, they're not going to use this to kick McCarthy out. 
Yeah, I, I admit I, I was totally surprised by this outcome. I should say we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. So this bill, which it passed the House with overwhelming majorities of Republicans and even more Democrats, it still has to go to the Senate. So it's going to be sort of tuned up there, presumably small tweaks. It comes back to the House and it goes to Biden's desk. But this was kind of a coup for McCarthy. It seems like, you know, he was underestimated by a lot of people, you know, including me. I, I definitely didn't expect that he'd be able to get something through so smoothly. But he kind of steamrolled this far right group, it seems like. they, uh, Like you said, they had a lot of potential leverage over him. And in the end, for one reason or another, they didn't use it. Why do you think they kind of backed down here? I think if you break it down... The motion to vacate for them has always been, as one person put it to me, a shiny object. It was not the most important thing that they wanted in the power sharing agreement with McCarthy. They wanted a better voice on the floor. They wanted certain bills to be brought up. They wanted to have committee positions. They wanted him to disengage from messing around in Republican primaries, a bunch of other things. In this case, I think they miscalculated the degree to which people would be open to defaulting. The last story I wrote about these guys a couple, like a month or so ago, the hardline group that was backing them, the Conservative Partnership Institute, a subset of that group, the Center for Renewing America, was really instrumental in putting together the package that the 20 put forth. And one woman told me that, we don't really care about the word default. It's not a real concept. We've got plenty of money to pay our bills, whatever. The establishment has tricked you into thinking that a default is a bad thing. Apparently, the majority of Americans do not follow that logic. The market does not follow that logic. And like a majority of Congress did not follow that logic either. So I think like even if the House Freedom Caucus waited till the last. You'll know that the House Freedom Caucus, a large percentage of them voted against the bill, but like the House Freedom Caucus itself did not put out guidance for what they wanted its members to do till right till the very end. I think that's a pretty big sign of how well he played this to the, close to the chest, how well he was able to keep certain members in line, allow other members to go a little bit buck wild and keep the people who do have MAGA credibility, but also don't want to see the government default close to him. Jim Jordan, Marjorie Taylor Greene, two of the biggest names in that movement. Thomas Massey is sort of his own libertarian weird thing, but you can't look at Thomas Massey and be like, no, you love big government. Well, let's drill down on those three because that is super, super fascinating. Jim Jordan was sort of a, a rival for votes in the speakership battle with Kevin McCarthy. But McCarthy kind of made him an ally. He he tucked him in with a with a committee assignment. And in the end, it looks like he, he returned that with loyalty. He was actually rolling calls, getting people to sort of back down from on the far right from voting against this thing. He was even offering some support of it. Massey, like you mentioned, is sort of this iconoclastic libertarian figure. He actually does have a national clock pin mm -hmm. that he has on his lapel, which is a, a funny character detail. I mean, I'll say this about Jim Jordan. He wasn't necessarily a quote-unquote rival for McCarthy. That was a relationship that had been cultivated for years. They used to be rivals. McCarthy kind of wore down his defenses. Now they're fairly close. And even when he was quote-unquote a rival for McCarthy during the speaker vote, 
He himself never publicly said, I want to be speaker, vote for me. He was just sort of like, nope, I'm voting for McCarthy. I'm totally voting for McCarthy. Uh, members of the 20 definitely rolled up to him or like, no, please let us, let us vote you for speaker. Please let us do it. And he's like, mm, no, I really don't. He was always with McCarthy, but the fact that the 20 was thirsting for him so hard um, gives you an idea of exactly what sort of sway he has over the House Freedom Caucus. Right. If, if there was an opportunity to come for the king, this might have been it. Jordan could have led an opposition to this deal. Instead, it looks like, you know, McCarthy brought him inside the tent and in exchange, he got his loyalty. He was actually working alongside McCarthy to to usher this thing through. Same thing with Massey, who was on an important rules committee where he could have been the decisive vote to hold this thing up and instigate a crisis. Instead, mm-hmm. he also waved this bill through a little bit unexpectedly, decided he was not going to cause any drama. And of course, you mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene as well. I mean, uh, someone who also surprisingly has been a staunch McCarthy ally, actually almost since the beginning of him getting the gavel. She's a member of the far right. Nationally, she is a member of the far right. She is a MAGA idol. Donald Trump loves her. She probably gets just as much, if not more love than Trump at rallies sometimes. But she's also a really savvy political player. She knows how to make friends. She's bizarrely very friendly in person, which you do not see from MAGA elected officials often, if at all. And as one person put it to me back in November, when she started publicly saying, I'm voting for McCarthy, I'm voting for McCarthy, she knows where power is and she understands that the best way to get power is to know how to play the system rather than running around saying, I'm going to break everything. And perhaps this is a sign of the limit that the 20 have, which is exactly how far can you get by running around saying, I want to break stuff. I'm not afraid of breaking stuff. Apparently this time, not very far. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, coming into McCarthy's speakership, I think you and I and a lot of people in the national press had that concern that there was this sort of insurrectionist group that was only interested in burning things down and that might instigate a a true economic crisis the first chance they got with this debt ceiling bill. And instead, it looks like McCarthy sort of cruised through this first test of, of leadership. Tina, do you think he definitely comes out of this stronger or is it possible he's also been weakened in real ways too? Because, you know, on the one hand, he's now proven himself capable as speaker, more so than I think a lot of us gave him credit for at first. He's also potentially mm-hmm. pissed off this small but but meaningful group of members to his far right. Is that going to come back to haunt him or, or is it just that this T20 group actually matters less than we thought? I think it depends on how long a certain section of that subsection of that group can hold a grudge. I would say Chip Roy, Andy Biggs, Ralph Norman, uh, Dan Bishop, a couple other people I can't think of off the top of my head. Matt Gates, I know for sure, does not want to mull on this, and he has a bunch of other things that he wants to focus on. I think Byron Donald seems to want to move on as well, but I'm not quite sure. Look, I mean, the way that you remove a speaker is a big series of processes. You can call a motion to vacate the chair with one vote, as McCarthy conceded during the speakership negotiations. But if you want to remove a speaker, there are a couple of other steps you have to take on top of that. And if you want to say it is because he is not a real conservative, you would have to muster a pretty big conservative block within Congress to agree with you. You can't just be like, hey, we're... six to 20 angry people, plus all of the other Democrats who want to get rid of McCarthy. 
that's just sort of embarrassing for you, especially if you're a person who is MAGA and who just ran around last night saying, I can't believe this debt ceiling bill passed with more Democrat votes than Republican votes. Yeah. And also, you know, another underappreciated factor here is Joe Biden. I don't want to give all the credit to Kevin McCarthy for being the adult in the room. It was also the Biden White House. They kept things under wraps. They didn't negotiate publicly. All along, they were sort of quietly downplaying what they actually apparently believe internally is a really big victory for Democrats and specifically for the White House. I think it makes things easier that Biden was actually fine with some small but but not meaningless spending cuts, just enough for mm-hmm. Republicans and Democrats to both overwhelmingly vote for this bill. But while it is the sort of victory in the press for McCarthy right now, it's also going to be a big, big bipartisan win for Biden going into election season. Mm -hmm. This is definitely something they can now go out and hype on the campaign trail. The message can be they were the true adults in the room. They got this thing done. And so I wonder if we'll also see long term more sort of simmering resentment towards McCarthy for handing Biden a pretty big win as well. Mm. In MAGA world, absolutely. But that's because MAGA people, the MAGA caucus, generally does not like capitulating to Democrats, which is why it's so notable that Marjorie Taylor Greene has allied with McCarthy here. But I think she's also the most politically savvy out of that entire group. Well, she seems to believe that they're going to get more of what they want, like in the appropriations process. I I, I don't know if that's true or if that's Mm -hmm. just sort of a line that she has bought from McCarthy. But Some Republicans seem to have convinced themselves that this is not the end of the game. Mm, That's for sure. And McCarthy does have to go back to the 20 and stick the landing with them. I don't think he'll be able to win over the entire block of 20, but I think as long as he has enough members of the 20 that would like not particularly care about turning this issue into the McCarthy get in that the I would say a big portion of the 20 want, that would be enough of a win for him. And that would show the that the 20 are not necessarily cohesive all of the time. That was the thing that um, really stood out during the speakership battles was that this group would not budge until he gave them stuff. But they just kept holding together as a block for a very long period of time. All right, we've got to go to break. And Tina, when we get back, let's check in on what is going on over at Twitter. Haha, <laughs> Yes. Okay, welcome back. Tina, changing gears a little bit. It has been a rough week or so for Elon Musk and his efforts to turn Twitter into a new MAGA-friendly free speech utopia. Um, obviously, there was the uh, the DeSantis campaign launch disaster, um, which sort of reflected poorly on uh, Twitter's technical abilities as a platform, the same time that Elon is trying to bring a lot of right-wing influencers and media partners in to to launch products on Twitter. Some of those conservative media outlets are also now angry at Elon over sort of losing his nerve on the whole free speech thing. Can you explain a little bit this dust up that's been happening the last day or so with the Daily Wire? Oh, boy. So um, the Daily Wire has a pretty strong presence on Twitter, primarily through its personalities like Jeremy Boring, Ben Shapiro, Candace Owens, what have you. So basically, you have to like go back a couple of steps here. Elon Musk, as you said, have been trying to court right-wing content creators to come on his platform and put video content on it. And 
he says that he wants to do it for like every type of content creator, but the right wing creators are gravitating towards it quickly and somewhat immediately. So one of those creators, uh, The Daily Wire, wanted to air a documentary that had been really popular in right wing circles called What is a Woman? And uh, it's a fairly controversial documentary about the quote-unquote trans agenda, and I would argue it's a documentary that fueled a lot of the panic and discrimination right now plaguing America over trans issues, bad way to put it, but that's basically what's happened. And initially, Twitter agreed to sell them this package that allowed them to air this documentary for free for 24 hours on a Twitter streaming VOD. And they would allow them to advertise this um, documentary on everyone's Twitter feeds uh, for 10 hours, which if you are the Daily Wire, that's massive reach. That's the type of reach you've never had anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And then the Twitter team asked them to uh, send over a screen of the documentary. And then they watched the documentary and they went, actually, no, wait, we will not sell this package to you. There are two instances of you misgendering someone. And they're like, wait, what? I, we're not allowed to misgender someone in our documentary? Twitter goes, no, actually, you can't. We're not going to let you stream this. And they're like, wait, if we put this on our platform, who do we get to show it to? And they're like, yeah, you can show it to the people who already follow you, but we're not going to advertise it elsewhere. So... Right now, The Daily Wire is having this giant public meltdown over whether Elon Musk is committed to free speech or not. And exactly where is the line going to be drawn on Twitter? Are you going to be allowed to post these things? Are you allowed to be able to post these things and then advertise them to each other? Are you allowed to be able to post this kind of content and then advertise it to people who are not already following you? What exactly will the reach of right-wing content be on Twitter? I think that's a debate that I hadn't personally thought of. And I think a lot of right wing creators are like going, oh, shit. Oh, shit. What is happening here? Yeah, of course. And, you know, the critical context being that that Elon Musk is trying to reinvigorate the advertising business on Twitter that he sort of killed when he when he first bought the platform. Advertising used to generate billions of dollars in revenue for Twitter. Elon decided either that that wasn't particularly important or that he wasn't too worried about driving blue chip advertisers off the platform by bringing back on a number of people who had been suspended or banned by loosening various rules around uh, discrimination and hate speech. He has since reversed course. He, he brought on a NBC executive to be CEO of Twitter, uh, Linda Yaccarino. It's been, she's been tasked essentially with bringing the advertising business back and of course, presumably Elon is now recognizing he's not going to be able to do that. He's not going to be able to generate revenue and make this a functioning, profitable business that he can one day sell for anything approaching the price he paid for it unless he can get those advertisers back on. And at the same time, those advertisers are absolutely not going to want to be on a platform that feels unsafe, that has brand safety issues. That would openly take money from a company that wants to platform this type of content. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and and frankly, you know, you have to have some standards for harassment and hate speech if you're going to generate meaningful revenue from advertisers. And to your point, it seems like nobody wants to run ads against anti-trans documentaries or, or Tucker Carlson monologues. So it, it's, it's hard to see exactly how Elon squares this circle or where he's going to net out on this question, where he's now in between the pro-free speech principles that he has publicly advocated and sort of the reality of running this business. 
Right, exactly. He uh, went on Twitter just now and said that this was a mistake and that they were allowed to promote this content. In a way, it seems like Elon right now has sort of the worst of both worlds, right? Because he's got very few advertisers on the platform. And now the right is pissed at him too. So he he's kind of alienated everybody. And I'm not sure in what direction he can move to resolve that tension. Ooh, yeah. I mean, the Honestly, I don't know if anyone who listens to this has watched right-wing Twitter as much as I have, but it's been this slow-rolling accumulation of right-wing gripes towards Elon Musk for a while now. He kind of goes back and forth on what is allowed versus what is not allowed. The entire issue over why is it that I'm paying $8 for a blue check mark if I'm not getting anything out of it, but now anyone can have one overall. He hasn't been good at keeping that part of his audience happy. And the thing with right-wing MAGA Twitter is that they are absolutists. And there is only so much patience they can have with you as you figure things out. Like, how long has Elon owned Twitter for? Like, a year? Almost? Well, that's the trap when you go down the road of saying you're going to be a free speech absolutist, you discover very quickly that you either allow the platform to become a a cesspool of anti-vax and anti-trans commentary, which, you know, to be clear, I see much more of these days in my feed than I used to. But the slippery slope from from expanding what people can say to allowing anything, at which point you end up with, you know, pure Nazi ideology floating around on the platform. It's hard to contain those things. It's hard to draw those lines. The previous Twitter regime had their ideas of what was acceptable and what wasn't. Elon might be moving that line in various ways, but there's still going to be a line and it's going to piss off some people. And right now Mm -hmm. it seems like he's got to pick a lane. He can kind of, he can go in one direction or he can go another, but the business model is going to need to adapt either way. And advertising really seems like the only way he's going to be able to dig himself out of the hole. Yeah. Look, I know that the Daily Wire makes a lot of money, but I don't think it makes keeping a $20 billion business afloat kind of money. All right, we've got to leave it there. Um, Tina, thanks so much as always for dropping by. This was fun, and we'll see you back here next week. Have a good Friday, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.